Welcome back to the People Behind the Tech podcast, which is brought to you by the Leaders Performance Institute and SBJ Tech. I'm John Porch, the editor at the LPI, and, as ever, I'm joined by Joe Lemire, the senior writer at SBJ Tech. Joe, Happy New Year. Now, I'm not going to ask you about your Christmas because it hasn't happened yet at the time of recording, but I will assume you enjoyed the holiday season. Always. And I'm glad we uh, got the transatlantic memo to wear maroon for today's podcast. So uh, I'm glad we're matching. <laughs> we do look rather fashion and, by the same token, ready to speak to our guest today. We're here with Brian Kniff, a UK Sports Institute performance lead with a particular responsibility for canoeing. Brian has worked in a number of disciplines, including field hockey, swimming, short track speed skating, boxing and weightlifting. And previously, Brian has supported the British and Irish Lions Rugby Union team as their performance scientists on tours of Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. He spent two years as a senior sports scientist at the British Olympic Association and has a master's in sports nutrition, a PhD in exercise physiology and is an honorary research associate at University College London. Brian is also an advisor at Hexis, an AI-powered nutrition app that is already making inroads across the world of sports. Brian, welcome to the show. Happy New Year. It's great to have you with us. How's it going today? Happy New Year uh, in advance. I've preempted this by putting on a few puns just especially for this podcast. So I've got an excuse for when New Year happens in a few weeks. Now. <laughs> Good to hear you're getting ahead of the game and I'm sure to be catching up with you by the time our listeners hear this, that's for sure. But moving on, Joe, I'll hand it over to you for our first proper question of 2024. Thanks, John. And I always start with this question about one's own personal technology. And I think for you, it, it, it sort of stands out that you have a, a, a new version of your, your CV where you share a lot of your, your learnings from your different positions. And I like this, um, this particular entry. I'm going to read it here. Oxygen mask. Personal energy management can and does impact your ability to do your job. I'd love to know more what, what you feel about that and, and how you apply it into your own life. Yeah, that's probably one I've, I've, I've learned the hard way. I think the sometimes misappraisal that on the front line you have to incessantly give energy and do that 24-7, I think at the cost of sometimes your ability to press the pause button. I think I've certainly learned it now in terms of what a leadership position is, um, and that's not necessarily one that lends itself towards chaos and essentially um, pushing the envelope at 100% all the time. I think you do have to have a sense of of calm and um, a quiet state of reflection to be able to go from street view into cloud view and, and back again. I think by default, you do have to have that um, self-care in order to give care to others. And I think at times I've probably sacrificed myself, certainly on the front line, before I could actually reach that state of uh, acknowledgement. And so you put on your own oxygen mask before the person next to yeah. you. Is that the idea? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. And what uh, wearable technologies, if any, do you use in your own daily life? Do you continue to monitor your own sleep or nutrition, anything like that? I, I, I'm probably a little bit of an anomaly in that whilst I absolutely get the, the impact um, and at times the necessity for self-monitoring, I don't do it 24-7, 12 months of the year. What I do try and do is try and periodize it. And what I have found generally is if I just do something all the time, my engagement with that task will typically wane. And so what I do try and do is think ahead 
a little bit like you would do with a, a kind of an athlete plan or a, a performance plan, strategic plan, but understand where would the typical pinch points be and then try and devise, I guess, in with, with a little bit of foresight, what I would expect to happen. So it allows me to reflect a little bit deeper into, I suppose, learnings, learnings about myself, um, such as the the energy mask analogy that I gave before. And that, and that was born out of being on a previous Lions tour where ultimately you're playing a game every three or four days and you're taking anything between 12 to 15 flights over a 15 changes of destination. And you're doing that while still doing your day job. So that would be a perfect example where you would press the start button, maybe minus three or four weeks before you get on that long haul flight to establish what baseline and good looks like. And then again, three or four weeks after, and then you've got a really nice time window of actually understanding self under severe duress. There are typical things in in a tour or competition space that you just have to get done. And that might be at the sacrifice of sleep and all of the the stuff that you would have have back in your home environment um, and some of the positive social distractions that that may have. There is the need to get work done, reports done, player engagement, recovery, social recovery and, and planning ahead. So there would be a kind of a typical example where actually the question would be, how do I understand myself under duress? What do I look like with alcohol at night what does my sleep look like etc etc maybe the the negative of doing it that way is that there might be some untoward events that might happen if you were continually monitoring that you may lose out on but it just seems to work for me and that's how i typically do it and uh, i also like to ask all of our guests about the the early career path what sets you on this journey to to sports science oh good question um i think by default i'm pretty curious i always have been I would probably be that person that always be looking around the corner to see what next. Um, and I think sports science by its very nature allows you to get a, a multi-spectrum understanding of human performance, whilst it may not allow you to go into singular levels or singular disciplines. Um, and that's something I've, I've strategically avoided. It can give you maybe a broad kind of comb-shaped understanding so that you can apply or layer that in the best way. I'm somebody that gets quite bored easily. So like the thought of being a domain expert in one specific area would bore the crap out of me. The fact if I had to write the same presentation and deliver it twice would bore me. And and that's not a, a sly on, on domain experts. I mean, I'm absolutely in awe of how they can maintain that level of, I suppose, discipline and absolutely get to the, the finer details of, of a topic or a, or a domain. But it's, it's that one wasn't for me. So I've always tried to explore that. And what I have found subsequently, I guess, is like it's very rare a performance question starts and ends in a singular discipline. And so by default, it's very rare that the, the answers and the solutions that can be generated towards closing the gap or answering a question can be solely solved from one discipline so interdisciplinary understanding and interdisciplinary working for me was key from the start and now in your current position i know you've outlined this idea of building models on the what it takes to win how do you explain and how do you set that up for each of your athletes well i'd probably say model isn't something that i would typically ascribe to what it takes to win. i think models is is a term that was it fits quite nice into i suppose a human understanding it's got a nice package around it i think it can imply linearity and constraints. 
I typically like to just use what it takes to win. Is 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 it's a it's a component part of what I would describe as good performance planning. Um, and so, but from that perspective, I would probably say it's a bit of a framework, which, in essence, is high level rigor and a deliberate process to understanding your sport and what what success looks like. So that would be profiling previous athletes, previous teams that essentially have got to the to the podium and and won the shiny stuff at the end. Um, I'm really asking yourself the tough questions around like what differentiates a chance winner from a probable winner from from somebody that has got uh, the ability, the skills and the game plan to be able to execute when it matters. And that for me is as much as a mindset as anything. I think good coaches do that anyway and have been doing since since the day dot. I think what, what it takes to win is just trying to extract what could be practice based evidence and evidence based practice together in a dual form and so it's not a data first perspective it's a it's a coach athlete and stakeholders engagement process so that it pulls all that intel and insights into one place so that hopefully allows you to have good anchor points for conversations but also in terms of mapping where you are now and where you actually need to go in the future and whether it's the the british and irish lions rugby tours you've been on or canoeing or any of the other sports you're currently on can you maybe give like a case study or an example of some of the data points that you're using to build that framework? Sure. I mean, as I said before, it is a little bit of a mindset, but if you break down, um, I'll give the, the lines as an example, like one of the, I suppose, key tenants in a tour like that is you got to be able to execute when it matters. So for me, if you were to describe what winning performance and people would argue with this, but what winning performance would look like in a space like that is like, you need to be able to build a cohesive and a tournament durable team on and off the field. But most importantly, they need to be able to peak when it matters. And so there, quite readily, you've got kind of four pillars. You've got optimally prepared to peak in the final three games. You need a cohesive team on and off the field. And then you have a a tournament durable team and management alongside a joined up performance plan. And in each of those areas, you would have areas that that would speak to data. So... What is our positional and team understanding of our opponents? So plan, tactics, game calls. Do we have a team that's available when it matters? Do we have a team that is um, physically and mentally prepared to peak, not just at the weekend, but again, midweek? Do we have smart load exposure? Um, do they have clar- Do we have clarity on the stimuluses that we need at certain points along that journey? Do we have an appropriate amount of experience in the squad? Do we have a squad size that's capable enough to withstand inevitable injuries, availability, etc., etc.? Um, and so all of those speaks to different parts of game insights, player insights, and wider, I suppose, strategic insights, and you keep breaking that down. So um, it's not a, a singular system or a singular entity that essentially speaks to that, but you're pulling all of those insights all the time. Some of those are live, but a lot of that is also pre-prepared in terms of understanding the player base that you inherit when you bring them onto a tour like that. Because every player will be coming from different squads and you've got to be able to understand what their fingerprint is. You mentioned, uh, you've written in regard to tournament planning, the, the need for rocks and sand. What do you mean by that? I think at times the sports science industry can look for the small stuff. And I think... When I typically say the small stuff, the stuff that can, while it's on its own, look shiny and add value, 
if you put all of that stuff and layer it accordingly, it can actually at times be a distraction. So for me, the big rocks are the kind of key pillars that I've just described and everything else should be aligned to that. I think if you exclusively just look at the big rocks, there is also a danger of players not feeling that you have gone out and explored things that can add value to them and that they feel that they have a support team that is actively, proactively searching for creative means, innovative processes and innovative tools to allow them to get to the space that they want to be. So I think if you cater for one exclusively in the absence of the other, you're probably on a little bit of a hiding to nothing. But certainly avoiding the sand and getting into the sand too much would be a, a key priority, particularly on a tour where time is everything and you need to be able to make smart decisions with smart decisions in a timely fashion. Fascinating. I'll uh, pause here and let John chime in. Thank you very much, Joe. Brian, I'd like to ask you about the individualization of athlete management systems, that bespoke approach to providing for the athletes who you support on a day-to-day basis. Where is tech best placed to support those athlete management systems in your view? I can probably give an appraisal of where it is currently and maybe where I think it can get to. I think if we get into a kind of an athlete development planning perspective, there would be key tenants in that you that you would look to I spent essentially carry out irrespective of, 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 of a squad or a team. So you would certainly be looking at an ambitious goal or and, and then you would get under the layer of what you're here, what you want to get out of the next 12 months. Season objectives, understanding the performance requirements, mapping an athlete against what you perceive to be excellence, whether that's behavioural or training standards. And then you start to get into a debriefing and review cycle. But um, in all of that, what you are trying to do is benchmark your athletes to understand where they are now versus where they were previously. And also you're looking at where they can be in the future. So you're slightly forecasting based on previous knowledge, intel and expertise that you have either accrued over the years or with the coaching team that sits behind the athlete. And so what you don't want to do is be in a place where you're hedging your bets all of the time. So monitoring of your athletes would naturally occur into that space. I think when it works well is when your monitoring and your benchmarking has a performance question that sits on top of it. I think, if, as I said earlier, if it's just running in the background, whilst it will give you something that you can reliably, I suppose, interject and recall on as and when a question props up. But in ideal fashion, your your key questions are all already aligned or they're more flexed as depending on when you you need to change plan or change the um, trajectory of where you want to go. So we would have your your classic um, athlete databases, your monitoring and your and your benchmarking tools that any squad would have, and then that would feed into what we would have is uh, athlete development team meetings or athlete development meetings where they're they're in the in, in that space themselves, and we're just bringing those insights all the time into the kind of, I suppose, typical questions. Is the plan working for you? Are we improving the training qualities that we set out to achieve? And are those training qualities absolutely pointed towards what we want to unlock based on your super strengths, but also what we believe the developmental gaps are? So there is a little bit of a mismatch between the classic tacit knowledge approach of coaching alongside of the more objective approach of um, monitoring our athletes. Right. And how do you see that relationship evolving between the bigger picture and the use of tech just as a point of conversation, if not relying wholly on that piece of technology? I, I, I've sat with coaches that 
were very tech adverse, didn't necessarily want to engage in. And I have set with coaches who possibly relied on it too much. I think there's a Goldilocks zone for sure. And you're, you're moving left and right all the time. I think disregard practice-based evidence at your peril because good coaches with a high level of experience, if they debrief and review correctly, will have a, a significant amount that needs to bring to the equation. And, and I'd be a big fan of things like heuristics where trusting people and providing frameworks to shortcut decision-making and trusting them to do that is absolutely key. But what it shouldn't be at the sacrifice of just pure chance alone. I think in our world, it's probably taken me a while to understand and accept uncertainty. And in my mind, it's almost like you've got a shitload of uncertainty on the left and you've, you've got confidence on the right. You start a training plan with a high level of uncertainty. So we write something or we prescribe something or we're trying to go on a journey and there's absolutely no guarantees at the end. And so the only way that we can build confidence in the trajectory or the journey that we're on is by, by doing a group or, a, 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 I guess, a number of key activities that sits in between. And that would be clear on goals. We benchmark our athletes. We understand their why. We monitor them, profile them against other people in their event or space. We devise a plan, we invite peer review, we critically reflect. And as long as you go through all of those loops, what you're constantly doing is diminishing uncertainty, but knowing that you will never diminish it uh, in its entirety. And we just keep building that confidence on the right. And I think the, the key in that is accepting that certainty doesn't exist or that data or insights can't provide all of that. You still have a human and the human factors in, in the middle of that. Speaking of that, if we reflect on performance innovation for a moment, I've heard it said that the easiest thing is building something fancy out of carbon fibre to make an athlete go faster, but it's harder to change behaviours. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I, I would. I've, I've certainly seen in different sports I've worked on in the past where you can build tech and you can build physical entities, but if you don't bring somebody on the journey or you don't cater for their learning needs or desires, you're probably on a hiding to nothing because you'll end up with a fancy piece of equipment that will just remain on the, on the shelf. In an ideal world, you've got both. But I think that design thinking and design journey, there's a lot that we could learn from industry in that space. And there's a lot that I've certainly learned and, and, and still am learning in that space in terms of how you essentially navigate into a creative solution but it certainly doesn't start with solutioneering. You have to start on that exploratory process. I call it kind of a double diamond. I think it's well well um, established in industry around you go out, you converge, and then you, you come back in. Yeah, behavior change is something that I think is a tool that good practitioners and good coaches can do really, really, really well, but it's probably not systematized and not embedded into our learning and sports science or coaching as well as it could be through the degrees that we, we, we undertake. Does it require someone in your position, say, to be humble in your approach, have a certain humility when you approach a performance question? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think it probably lends itself back to some of the stuff that we've just talked about because it comes with a degree of uncertainty. And if we, we accept uncertainty, you have also got to bring a, a sense of humility to it. Well, so all we can do is speculate and, and increase 
I suppose, the confidence in our journey to, to hopefully get there. There are no guarantees. And so I think like the best story always wins and, and you should never lead a conversation with the data. For me, the data is just a component part um, in helping unlock the picture that you want to see at the end. I always try and maybe lead with the purpose, what are we here for, and, and then try and, and plug in the data alongside it. Um, earlier on in my career, I, I kind of viewed maybe data as a tool to unlock in most conversations, and all you were doing was just leading with the same hammer and nail all the time. And there's nothing more ostracizing than, than that. I think whilst it does provide a lot of visuals and it can anchor a conversation quite quite instantly, it can be highly reductionist and very narrow. And so you could be going down cul-de-sacs pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I think on other elements of it, I've certainly been guilty of looking at correlation causation way too early in a, in a, I suppose, a journey or a life cycle of a project or a performance goal. I think the experience that you crew over the years allows you to maybe layer that effectively and bring people on a journey a little bit more, but also maybe appraising what it gives you, but also what it doesn't give you. It's absolutely key. Joe, I'll hand back to you. Thank you. You've been doing this for long enough that you've probably seen athletes and their attitudes change a bit. How much are some of the younger athletes viewing their careers um, and also the tools available to them differently in terms of wanting to be more empowered and, and involved in the process? I've definitely seen a slight shift. I don't think it's anything different to the wider societal shifts that we see in, I guess, it, but it is Gen Z now. There's a real danger that we put everyone into a box. And yes, the Gen Zs, they're, they're curious by nature. They want a high degree of personalization. They want to co-create. They want to understand the why. All of those things are kind of what you would want to get from an athlete anyway. But you will still have a fair proportion of athletes that just want to receive and just tell me what to do. And again, that kind of comes back to maybe just everybody is different. But there will be certain elements that um, maybe that weren't existing 10, 15 years ago that are now. So we are dealing with, I guess, a cohort of athletes where instant gratification is endemic, not just in their worlds, but also when they get outside of, of the training center. They will be surrounded by a group of experts that will be telling them that they should be investing in X, Y, and Z. There will be agents, there will be sponsors that will be placing stuff into the hands of our athletes and our coaches and we have a cohort of athletes certainly from when I started on the journey which was 20 years ago now where you can just literally get the answer whether it's correct or not within two seconds either through social media or or google and so what that requires is us to be cognizant of the pros and cons of that but not ignoring it I think there is an onus of responsibility on, on us to pay attention to that and understand some of the risks that comes with that, but also not neglecting the fact that we are moving at such pace that we should never sacrifice the, as I suppose, those big rocks that are part of any performance program, which is clear sense of purpose, high levels of communication, clear strategic direction, high quality coaching, and a talent pipeline that understands the journey that they need to go on to be, I suppose, being in, in, in the best shot of putting performances down, not now, but in 10 years' time. When you mentioned the, the instant gratification, does that 
sort of change the incentive structure of training and gamification and all that? I think so. I think so. I think one of the things that I have noticed is maybe the gravitation towards maybe the mundane tasks isn't as energizing to younger athletes as it was in previous days. And whilst we could moan about that, for me, the opportunity is how do we incentivize the mundane? So I'll break that down. So some sports, the more endurance heavy, typically the age to medal winning performance is a, it's a longer journey because you've got to lay down foundations over a, over a number of years. You've got to have consistent processes and able to be, to be able to execute. And so you've got to take somebody from the age of 16 all the way up to maybe late 20s, early 30s. There's a lot of graft involved in certain sessions, training sessions. And so what we've got to do is maybe bring it back to how do we incentivize the mundane and how do you accrue training minutes in in right training zones or how do you keep a a player engaged day after day, week after week in the prevalence of distractions, in the prevalence of all of the stuff that is happening around society and around that player. It's becoming a, a more difficult task but then we've got to pay more attention to that. So like one of the, I suppose, the possibilities is that how do we design tech and tech solutions to almost combat tech solutions and distractions? There's a slight irony in there, but how do we bring it back to the stuff that matters? And not just for players, but for staff as well. How do we help coaches on a journey to help understand not just the stuff that they players have completed but maybe some of the decisions that we need to take on a journey and learn from that so that we're not replicating and duplicating but we can be more efficient with our time yeah well said again uh, to go towards your uh, your cv another one of these mantras that sort of stood out to me don't be a funnel in terms of about empowering and developing leadership around you i'd love to hear a little more about that I, i've seen it in so many people um it's kind of the, the the peter principle i think early stages when you get start gravitating into leadership positions you have to learn the hard way and just because you're an excellent practitioner doesn't mean that you make an excellent leader but one of the things that i guess i've discovered from looking at i suppose leaders that i respect but also uh, in, in my own leadership journey is like it's it's absolutely pointless in me being the the go-to person for everything or decisions have to come to me for ratification. I think that the key is trying to empower your staff to be able to to make those, but with a framework that they can operate in and, and providing some safety and reassurance that that can happen. And at times we will fail, but as long as we pre-review, do a little bit of a pre-mortem every time we take, I suppose, key decisions in our strategic plan, we can we can put fail safe measures in place, but like the realities of it is, leaders are no different to the people on the front line. They will have family, they will have life demands, and the more you fill that up with with encouraging people to come to you all the time, you'll end up burning out. You'll be on a, a highway to nothing. Um, and so, I think it's really important, and it is to try and make sure that you're on a, I suppose a continual personal development cycle, but also you're trying to develop others around you to make sure that when I leave, somebody else can very quickly step in. When we've interviewed other experts or when we have interviewed experts on this podcast, we've often asked like about, you know, those who are practitioners, how are they keeping up with the research and any sort of stated from the outset, how your, your, that's not, you know, your purview is 
keeping an eye on everything. So how do you keep that diverse network of whether it's publications or just, or it is the experts, like how do you sort of continue to cultivate knowledge in so many different fields? Like how, how intentional do you have to be for that to happen? It's, it's getting harder if I'm honest with you, Joe. Um, 10 years ago, uh, like I would have maybe two or three or four kind of cold calls or, or email hits around new advancements in technology. Um, or there would be three or four really cool conversations that you'd have ongoing in the background around, oh, that would be great if, or wouldn't that be amazing once we get these things done and, and we can plug into that at some point in time. I'm probably getting three or four per week now. And it's it it does become quite burdensome isn't is probably not the, the not the right word but it can be quite overwhelming at time times and the sense to, to kind of be on top of it is heavy um what i've had to reconcile with is again going back to to first principles and what i believe to be true to performance enhancement irrespective of what decade that we are in and surrounding myself with a group of people that can either i can tap into readily or they can feel free to to, to um, send me stuff as and when. Like I, I said at the start, I think offline that I, I, I graduated 20 years ago. Ironically, we had our, our 20 year um, anniversary yeah, at the weekend. So we, we met up for a few a few points and this was a, a live topic conversation. But um, it got me thinking on the, on, on the flight on the way on the way back here. Since I graduated 20 years ago, there has been a 300% increase in the number of sports science graduates. And there has been an 87% increase in the number of scientific journals. And so what that is, is a number, a, a very, very large number of the amount of people that want skin in the game. And that's extraordinary increase in the amount of information that is coming to coaches, practitioners, and people like myself to have to make sense with. So what I've, I guess, had to do is design frameworks where when I do see new tech, I can quickly evaluate it against all the kind of typical stuff that you would expect to see and, and, and start to, I suppose, map it out in terms of is it a fill-in, is it a major project, would it add value now or add value into the future? And with all the kind of typical stuff that you would expect, like, ease of um, implementation how scalable is is it is it interoperable does it speak to other technology systems could i develop apis etc etc but um i do have to um filter a lot more than i used to in the past sure i have uh, one more before i hand it back over to, to john but i know you were um Advising a startup for a few years in the field of epigenetics. What is the potential for that as it gains more research and acceptance in sports? It was an interesting discovery process for me because it was the first time I had done that. I've, I've delved into a couple since, but um, what it got me to understand was what the VC world truly means and what the gap between industry and products making it to the front line is, and it's pretty vast. Why I got interested in that per se was because Going back to our earlier conversations, we design training plans and performance plans with a crap load of uncertainty. And so we give someone a strength plan or a conditioning plan or a wider performance plan. And realistically, we've got absolutely no 
guarantees is whether that's going to be successful or not. So I was really interested from an epigenetics perspective is if we could profile somebody either at the start or midway and really quickly understand whether or not that plan was working for them. And if we needed to flex the plan, it was based off knowledge and insights as opposed to just casual conversations or some of the monitoring process that we would have in place. So it was from an economy of scale, economy of effort perspective. But the, I suppose the outspring shoots of that are vast in terms you can develop potentially epigenetic signatures that would help understand things like injury prevalence, concussion, and even into something like a racehorsing domain where there are, is a, a lot of wastage in terms of um, trainability and whether or not you buy quite as large commodities, costly commodities at the start and hope that they can reach some some degree of a cost return at the end. So it got me into that space. It was really interesting. I think it's it's certainly years from reaching somewhere on the front line, but it's very, very early stages. And I think there's a lot of potential in that space if it's done in the right way. Brian, the UK Sports Institute is a collegiate environment. There are many sports under that umbrella. And I wanted to ask you, what has been your biggest lesson or what have been some of your biggest lessons from your colleagues in other sports? What have you learned from them? And maybe what do you feel that they've learned from you and your experience? What I have learned is there's not massive dissimilarities across some of the performance problems that we're facing. And that, whilst it could sound arrogant in some quarters, it also can provide a lot of reassurance that actually shared learning and shared problem solving is absolutely key. I think we typically wrestle with similar problems, but at maybe different stages in, in an Olympic cycle. Um, we've got to develop a cohort of athletes that is hopefully trying to realise their ambitions and qualify for an Olympic Games, but knowing that 98% of athletes that come out of an Olympic village, if they're lucky to get there, will probably be disappointed. So we've got to, we've, we've, we've got to take all of that on board and um, try and, I guess, optimally prepare athletes, not just on a performance journey that is a four-year one, but maybe an eight-year one or one that doesn't have the shiny stuff on the end of it and being really truthful to ourselves and them that actually the the sporting journey is one that just goes beyond podiums, vests, and if you're lucky enough to be within the very small minority of athletes that are lucky enough to get to the, to the gold medal and bronze. But um, I would say a lot of shared learnings in that space uh, a large turnover is something that we're wrestling with quite a lot. And I would love to see whether it's in industry or in other sports, teams, organizations that can constantly accrue learning and growing that learning loops over time rather than have it to be interrupted when staff, coaches or athletes leave a system. I think that's something that we've not been particularly good at. And so what I'm really interested in at the moment is how do we profile decision-making alongside of a performance plan and alongside of some more of the objective data that we have feeding into our, our I suppose, planning journey or athletic journey. Because um, one of the things that I've become acutely aware is when I lose a practitioner, a lot of that bank of knowledge goes outside the door. And whilst they may have stuff in a hard drive, I'm employing a human to make humanistic decisions at a given point in time. And either kinetic dynamometer score or a force plate score isn't going to tell me what went on 
in that athlete's journey. So if I break that down as an example, like you have an athlete that, that has an injury and you've got a high quality physio and an SSC coach that are coalescing around a return to, to, to play decision, there will be a number of decisions that they will make alongside um, some of the data and insights that they bring to the equation. I'm often just left with, at best, some of the data. But what I don't have is the profile of decisions that they made alongside alongside of that, such as, do we go conservative management versus surgical intervention? Do we, do we inject? Do we not inject? Do we, at what point do we rehab into a generic S&C space versus a medical space? What uh, modality should we use and when? How much load prescription should we, should we choose as and when? And, and it just keeps accruing on. But what they will be drawing upon is insights that they will bring from some of the other sports, but also some of the tacit knowledge that they have accrued over the years. And I think what would be fantastic for me is a athlete management, performance management system that not only profiles the information on the athlete's journey, but also the decisions that we make alongside that journey. For me, that's absolutely key because then it would allow me to to keep growing and retaining that learning cycle as we um, incur costs which are staff leaving. Finally, and from our listeners' perspective, we're at the start of an Olympic and Paralympic year in Paris. What are you most excited about in the 12 months ahead? Um, what am I excited about? I, I want to see staff and athletes with smiles on their faces, knowing that this should be the pinnacle of, of, of their careers. And, and I want to see I want to see staff and athletes who know that whatever they've done in the next 12 months, that no stone has been left unturned and they will be left with no regrets. I think if I can look in the mirror as a performance leader in that space and feel that actually we've tried our best, that's all you can ask for. I, early on in my career, was solely focused on winning and my identity was almost linked to winning and that's a pretty soulless, empty space for me. Um, I want to go into an office where coaches, practitioners and athletes have a high level of trust and it sounds pretty cheesy, but there's a high level of robust challenge, but we can, we can do it with a smile on our face, know that irrespective of what's in front of us that we've got some plan or some confidence in terms of tackling that if we can do that fantastic brilliant stuff brian thank you very much for your time today this has been great thank you you're very welcome thank you